Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the many blessings we have of life, of home, of family, of friends, of security. We live in a world of great need and great challenge. There are wars and rumors of wars. There are fires and there's plagues and famine. There are many things that would cause us rightly to be concerned and troubled. We thank you above everything else that, Lord Jesus Christ, you are the King. That you rule and reign. That you will come again. You've given us the Holy Spirit in the meantime as he lives within the lives of your people and stamps the seal of your ownership within us. So he also comes to speak into our lives through the scriptures, through our Bibles. And so as we read your word now, just as much as the young folk through the way do it in a way which is helpful for them, so as we turn our minds to your word now, so, O Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide Enable us to have ears to hear and hearts and minds open and ready to respond to all that you would say to us for the glory and honour of Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, and it will be helpful for you because, to read it, because we're going to be looking, the theme for the prayer guide this coming week is, Are You Ready? And the theme is, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're going to do, one, quite a few of the readings are drawn from Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And so basically, in some ways, it's not very exciting in a sense, we're simply going to read through this cha these chapters and reflect on them. And when I saw it, it was the theme in one sense, I, I, initially I thought, well, I think it's fair to say, I hope it is anyway, that that message of Christ coming again is not one that's unknown by this congregation, although it may not be so familiar to some who are listening to this at home or at light online at a different time. We often speak of that. We mark Advent not primarily, though it is, but not primarily a preparation for Christmas, although as I say it is in part, but primarily a season when, when actually within the church calendar is meant to reflect on the one who will come wearing the Advent crown, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I think it's fair to say we often make reference to that in sermons, in our hymns that we choose. Many of the hymns, of course, sing of that and speak of that, especially at the end often of those hymns. So in one sense, it's a subject, I hope anyway, that we have a degree of confidence in, in that he will return. That, of course, isn't, hasn't always been the case within the life of the church. And I better get my sermon notes or I'll be wandering. You might say I wander anyway, but I wander even more. Um, that's not always been the case within the life of the church. Interesting, over the years, I've read through, for instance, we have in the vestry, we have copies of the church magazine from the 1920s right through to the late 1960s, covering two ministries, one a very long ministry of Mr. Murray, who was here for 36 years, and one of John McNaughton, who was here for about 10 years or so. And so one was writing church letters in the light of the First World War and during the Second World War, and the other minister, the younger minister, was writing church letters during a period of the Cold War, the H-bomb, the Cuban Missile Crisis 
prices and everything else. And as I've read those letters, they actually tell us and remind us that within traditions of the church like ours, and I do emphasize that, within traditions of the church like ours, the idea of Christ coming again, well, certainly, I can't say it was never mentioned because I'm not saying I've read every single word in every single letter, but certainly was not a theme that was ever referred to even in the midst of war. The idea was that the coming again of the kingdom was the church being triumphant, the church transforming this world. A kingdom of peace and harmony being established in this world through the influence of God's church. And that really was the understanding of the return of Jesus Christ. Of course, I'm also aware in this congregation there are people coming from different traditions of the church where that wasn't particularly the case, meaning that it it was referred to. Indeed, it was very often referred to in the light of the whole rise of dispensations theology in the 19th century, the whole rise of millennial thinking, then some parts of the church, parts of the church that some of us have drawn from, spoke often about the return of Christ with a particular understanding, particularly thinking of him returning and having a thousand-year reign here on earth, drawn particularly from passages in the book of Revelation, but also from passages from the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, within our own tradition of the church, the confession of faith, which is still the subordinate standard of a church, I actually went to look at it, um, actually doesn't have a lot to say about the details. It simply says this, in the answer in the catechism to how is Christ to be exalted and is coming again to judge the world, the answer is Christ is, is to be exalted and is coming again to judge the world, in that he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men shall come again at the last day in great power and in the full manifestation of his own glory and of his Father, with all his holy angels, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, to judge the world in righteousness. And then later on, concerning the last day, what are we to believe concerning the last day and the resurrection? It says we are to believe that at the last day there shall be a general resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. When they that are then found alive shall in a moment be changed, and the selfsame bodies of the dead which were laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up in the power of Christ. And it goes on to say, what shall immediately follow the resurrection? Immediately after the resurrection shall follow the general and final judgment of angels and men, the day and hour whereof no man knoweth, that all may watch and pray and be ever ready for the coming of the Lord. And again, in the confession of faith, of the last judgment, it makes it, for instance, in the last part, as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin, and that includes, of course, the women, um, and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men, that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. And so within the catechism, 
of the church. The return of Christ is there, but the details are certainly left vague. Yesterday at Dumblain event, we were invited to share in the saying of the Nicene Creed, one of the ancient creeds of the church. Unfortunately, it didn't appear on the screen, so we had to rely on Nathan reading it to us. But part, right at the centre of that Nicene Creed, is this. On the third day, Christ rose again, according with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. The Apostles' Creed is the same. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And can I say this morning to you, and I appreciate not everybody will agree with me in this, but oh well, that I think the safe ground for Christians, especially as we gather people from different traditions, is that we affirm what unites us that Christ is coming again, and that we leave to personal discussion and reflection and opinion how that will take place, at what time, and in what context specifically. But that's not to say that we're meant to be ignorant of that subject. So let's turn to God's Word and to what Jesus himself says about that subject in these two chapters. The context, of course, and we're told that at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, is that Jesus is leaving the temple. The context is Holy Week. The context is all the events that are building up towards his death or cross and all that will take place. And so we read, and I'm just going to read through part of it and reflect on with you. Jesus left the temple, Matthew 24 and verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. It probably is a sign of getting older that you begin to think, oh, aren't things terrible? It wasn't like that when I was young. <laughs> yeah, you know the script. And I remember my parents, I remember my mum saying, oh, I'm glad I'm going out, to the, out of the world, not into it. 
and Magran, who'd lived through the turn of the last century in the First World War, well, she didn't so much say that, but bless you, she was a woman of very real faith, but nonetheless would reflect on things that really were hard and, and difficult in the early part of the last century. It's easy, tempting, and understandable for each generation to think that, well, things are definitely worse, and that definitely this must be the last generation before Christ returns. That is, obviously, if you have a person of faith. And the disciples have that understanding here when Jesus speaks about the temple, and that's what he's speaking about, and he goes on to read verses 15, I'm not going to read them all, to 21, particularly speaks about what was going to happen to Jerusalem, and happened in Jerusalem in AD 70. Nonetheless, as they hear of that, they presume that that must be it, that that's the end of the story. Because they say, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They look at the massive temple and think, well, if that disappears, that must be the end of time. And the scroll of history of time will be rolled up. But of course, it wasn't. And if later on yourself, I'd encourage you, as I've encouraged you the last Sundays, because by the very nature of the prayer guide looks at big subjects, big themes, I encourage you to read through, for instance, these two chapters yourself at your own leisure. Jesus, in a lot of what he says, is inter intertwining in the midst of it what was going to happen in relatively short notice, particularly the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, what was going to happen in the interim period, and yes, things that will build up towards that final great day day when we're told the end will come, verse 14. And in the midst of that period, there will be ebbs and flows. Nations will turn against nations. There'll be a rise of persecution. There'll be a breakdown in community love and care. There will be false messiahs, false people. Our philosophies will appear and people will say that's the answer to the world's problems. And we've seen that in human history. We've seen that in the last century. We see that today where people are looking for answers to the world's problems. Understandably so, because the world has many problems. And are looking to this person or that philosophy or that particular recipe as a cure to all the world's ills. That is human history. That's why, of course, I would argue that if you're really going to be a good preacher and know your Bible, you also have to have some knowledge and love for history. Because it's the story, it's the backdrop to what God says and does down through the years. And so it may be understandable for us, for us to think this must definitely be the last days. And of course, they might be. But they may not be. Let me read on. Verse 20, after speaking, particularly what was going to happen to Jerusalem. But picking up verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time, be prepared, be warned. And how often within the history of the church, 
people have come forth with some new idea, some new interpretation, some new teaching, and people have thought, this must be the definitive answer, and we're all still sitting there two or three years later. So, verse 26, if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out, or he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass there, the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Quoting from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. I'm very conscious this morning that our service, and thank the tech team, Robert, particularly for overseeing the broadcasting of the service. It's really quite mind-boggling, isn't it, that somebody could be on the other side of the world. Indeed, relatives in New Zealand have, um, off, well, on occasion, listened in to our service. We live in a day where there is almost instantly global awareness. The only thing that stops it from being globally recognized is that, well, we do have to sleep. Can you imagine events in Jerusalem and an appearance of the Son of Man coming in clouds, being broadcast throughout our world? And even more solemn, all the peoples of the world mourning when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And yet in the midst of that solemn warning that that day will come, we're assured that the angels with a loud trumpet call will gather the elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth. During this past week, we've been looking at the theme of escapology. As you remember, last Sunday, we looked at the story in the book of Acts. But one of the readings was also from Second Peter. I'm not necessarily asking you to look that up, but nonetheless hear these verses from Second Peter, chapter 2 and verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held in judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, burning them to ashes, and made them example of what's going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment 
on the day of judgment. And on that subject, he goes on to say in chapter 3, do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godless lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we, God's people, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The Son of Man will come. It will be an awesome day. And the earth will mourn. But if you're a child of God, you will be delivered, saved, and received. But Jesus goes on, verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, verse 38, chapter 24, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. At the men's fellowship on Thursday evening, and we had a, a good turnout, and so encouraging. And there's an invitation to men in the congregation to join us for that in a fortnightly on a Thursday evening. We even spoke about having to outgrow the gathering place, and that we have to go to the church or to move into two groups because the numbers are such. That's a great encouragement to me as your minister. And as a sign, in a sense, of a spiritual preparedness within our hearts for the times in which we live. At that time... Ian McQuarrie um, shared the very sorrowful story of having to conduct a funeral recently for a friend of his son Ross, a man who was barely in his 40s, who had been diagnosed with liver cancer, left a wife and two young children, is it? And relatively quickly passed from this earth. Someone who he knew, obviously, through the family, someone who had not professed any faith and go to any church, but whose widow, whose wife, wanted a minister to take the funeral. Do pray for that opportunity. But as Ian shared, he said something which those of us, Graham and others who are involved in that type of ministry will know, that actually people thanked him for the service. One or two people did, who were obviously people of faith, appreciated particularly the mention of God and the bringing of that into the service, as Ian, we know, would do so faithfully. For the majority, eat, drink, and be merry. And we often wonder, do we not? I certainly do. Why are people not more troubled at the state of the world? Well, there are people who are and who are deceived by false messiahs and led into all sorts of things. But for the vast majority of people, yes, they may be troubled and they keep it deep down. I'm not saying they're not troubled at all. But there certainly is no, I mean, why is there not a queue outside the churches in our land as people seek God's face? And yearn for his mercy. And want his wisdom. But the point is, there isn't. 
because the God of this world has blinded them. And the sad reality is that they are reserved not for salvation and deliverance, but judgment and death. And that's something I don't say lightly. As it was in the days of Noah, we neither know the day nor the hour. That's why I always be very wary of people who will come and say it's going to happen then. I've been in this job and as a Christian long enough, and many of us are to have known praying many a days who, which were mentioned. Be wary of that. Be assured of what Jesus tells us just before that passage. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. What Jesus says, he does, but a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The sun, we're told, doesn't even know when that day is, but it will happen just as surely as Jesus was raised from the dead. That's why resurrection Easter is so vital to the Christian faith. Just as that stands as the testimony that God keeps his word and does what he has promised, so that word will be fulfilled on that day. But it will come. Peter tells us, no doubt thinking of what Jesus said as they met with him in that holy week and heard these words recorded for us in Matthew's gospel, it will come like a thief in the night. And that's amplified, if you read on with me, in verse 42. Therefore, let's read on. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant who the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself my master is staying away a long time and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards the master of that servant will come in a day when he does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of and he will cut him to pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth you know my friends we can hardly read the gospel really if we probably did the gospel and think of Jesus some kind of wimp you know Jesus never the old him meek and mild well, yes, he was, the penitent and the outcast, and the person who sought his mercy. But he wasn't, you know, this is pretty harsh stuff, isn't it? Cut him into pieces and place him with the hypocrites where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is serious, and his word is solemn. And the call is not to be complacent and think, ah, well, hello happened in my time. How often sometimes we say, I've known, well, not to be not here so much in the days past, but I, you, when I came at first, some folks sitting here said, I'll see him out. There's not many of them left sitting here now. But we're all a bit like that, you know. It'll not happen in my time. I'll, whatever. No, it might. This very day the Lord might come in glory and power. 
When the trumpet will be called, or this very day your soul may be required of you. We had a very solemn story yesterday at the, at the meeting in Dumblain of one of the ministers of the church on a charity bicycle ride. He felt unwell yesterday morning, got off his bike, but the afternoon he was on his deathbed and entering into glory. We are not to be complacent or careless or indifferent, but to get on with the work in hand, serving the people. And just read, we're not going to because time will not allow us, but read the story of the sheep and the goats and the solemn word of Jesus there, serving one another. Notice the community basis. Again, there's so much one could say. I'm going to be getting to do a series on this and it'll be later on in the year. I'm joking. Don't worry, brother. If you want to, you're welcome. <laughs> but there's so much. But there's community. There's an idea of community. It's not just me and Jesus. It's the people of God. It's the body of Christ and that mutual caring. And if you're listening to this and you think, oh, the church doesn't really need me and I'm just going to sit at home and do my own thing, you're wrong, brother and sister. You're letting others down. You're letting yourself down. And far more importantly, you're letting King Jesus down. For he will come and he'll expect us to be about our father and his father's business. Let's read on. And even this, being able to do this is a great privilege for me as a minister, that we can spend time reading through the Word of God. I can assure you, I was talking to a minister yesterday, and the church sessions told him, he said, cut his sermon down to 12 minutes. And you said, well, that wouldn't work here. <laughs> you come to the devotionals during the week. I can give a short word when it's appropriate. I can. But this is our main time for attending to the Word of God, and so it's important we do. But thank you, because I don't take lightly your willingness to engage with that. So let's read on. Chapter 25. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us, and you instead go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. And while they were on the way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. I went out yesterday morning, and I thought it was quite chuffed. I'd got, even went and put diesel into the car. Thankful it wasn't petrol. I put diesel into the car. I did petrol once before, but anyway, this was diesel. And I thought, well, that's me already. And I went out to collect people. And then, of course, I remembered that the car seat with the wee one, for the further wee one, was in the back seat. And that the buggy had to get moved. And so then I had to start dismantling that. And would it come out? Was it, you know, and all the rest. And poor Ian and Helen and me probably were thinking, well, come, not Lord Jesus, but come, Bruce. <laughs> I thought I was ready, but I wasn't. 
And apart from anything else, this parable warns us to be ready. Not just to have diesel in the car engine, but the oil of the Spirit in our lives. To be ready to greet the Lord when He comes most unexpectedly. The language here is picked up by the Apostle Paul when he's speaking about marriage. You remember those verses in Ephesians, but when he speaks about marriage, he also speaks about this. Ephesians 5 and 26, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, the bride of Christ. And that theme is picked up in the book of Revelation and in these verses from Revelation chapter 21, where we read, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And one of the angels said to me, Come. And I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. They carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You know, my friends, if you're a believer this morning, you're precious in his sight, not just individually. You're part of that bride part of that beautiful thing that Jesus gave himself for. And it's precisely as part of that, and yes, as bridesmaids, in a sense, waiting for the the groom to come and all the rest of it, it's precisely as part of that that we're called to be ready, to be filled with the Spirit. Now, the truth is, of course, Not all of us, all the time, are filled with the Spirit in that kind of way. Of course not. We're human. We're frail. But that sense of expectation, that sense of, come, Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, prepare me, enable me this day to do your work. Whatever that may be. In my working life, in my relationships, and how I use my resources, and how I spend my time, my time, my talents, my money, infuse all of that with your spirit, with the oil of heaven, so that I'm ready. I say that to my own soul as much as to anyone else. I'm ready, so that even if today you should call me, or today you should return, I could present that as a gift. Not be caught out. Read on as we draw to our close. 
Again, it'll be like verse 14. Again, like a man going on a journey, he called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who'd received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. And the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold bought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So he was afraid and went out and hid your gold on the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you, you that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the other one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, solemn words. The gold of God's grace. That peril without price. All the parables of Jesus. There's so much here, so much here. Do we bury it away? Or do we allow it to be released? Do we draw on the blessings of it for our daily life? Because how we need God's grace if we're going to live in that sense of preparedness and readiness. How we need his help. We're all human and wearied. Visiting dear Wilmer on Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon? Yes, it was Friday afternoon. In hospital. Someone who was a blessing to many of us, faithful in our visiting to so many different people within the congregation, their apple tarts were renowned. And she told, thank you for coming. I touched her arm. Well, man, I said, you visited so many. I said, so if the minister can't visit you in hospital, it's a bad day. As you have given, so you'll receive. Let's be wise stewards of what God has given us the breath in our bodies. The time which like sand just disappears so quickly through our hearts. The opportunities in our life to serve him, to know him, to get to know him better. There's no need for any of us not to be accessing something to help us grow in our faith even more than just a Sunday morning. Plenty of opportunities and we could certainly have more if, you, if we need it. To grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
so that as a body we'll be prepared for whatever might happen. Yes, for the times of change that face us as a congregation, for the challenge of our community. And I did speak up yesterday when the gentleman who was very gifted and very fine fellow, very fine fellow, but nonetheless, he was sharing about his own experience about a particular setting. I did speak up and say, well, that's maybe not just Uddingston, you know, and there's challenges here as well in case he thinks that middle-class suburbia or whatever we might call ourselves is somehow, you know, kind of, it's not. There's real challenges, a hardening of hearts. But they were ready, that were responsive, and that we use the gifts that God has given us, our very lives, wisely and fruitfully. I haven't always done that. I'm sure we could all say that. But now is the day of salvation. And we do not want to be those. And these finds we close these final words again from Matthew's gospel and again from the words of Jesus. From Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the, does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. And in the light of the parable of the sheep and goats, which we can't read because time has gone, it's not the upfront stuff that impresses Jesus. It's the quiet word, the helping hand, the hesitant testimony to a friend or to a neighbor or to a colleague about him. Not about us, about him. That's what stands the test of time. Remember what Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this generation, I will be ashamed of you. But if you confess me before men and women, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. We know neither the day nor the hour. We might speculate, and yes, in discussion, we might find that helpful with friends and amongst ourselves. But we agree that he is coming. The day will draw near. And what's most important is that in the here and now, we live for him. Do you know Jesus this morning in that kind of way? Do you love him? Have you opened your life to his mercy and grace, to that peril, to that gold, to those treasures that nothing on earth can offer? For he is that gift that no money, no possession, no talent, no status can ever own or possess, but freely given. And like a little child, take it, own it, and be possessed by it. For in him, there is life, and life everlasting. Let's sing together a hymn before we pray together of that cry of the church the Bible ends with, come.
Lord Jesus. It's for Lord our prayer is that however we're positioned physically in the sanctuary this morning, we would know afresh the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that brought again Jesus Christ from the dead. The same Spirit that moved over the waters at the dawn of time. The same Spirit that came upon your church on the day of Pentecost. So by that Holy Spirit, refresh and renew us, we pray, that in this day and in this generation, we might proclaim boldly in word and in deed the marvelous riches of the grace of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us wisdom to know how to do that. Open up doors of opportunity. Give us sensitivity. Help us to have ears to hear. Help us to listen to where people are at so that we might detect questions, comments, reflections in the way things are. Give us boldness, Lord, when humanly speaking, our hearts would fail us. Give us confidence in your word. Give us confidence in you, Lord Jesus. We don't have all the answers, but we would point to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Enable your church in these days by its leadership to bear witness to Christ. We thank you for yesterday and for the younger men who ministered from the front and younger people who were gathered there. Continue to build your church and equip your church for the days, however long or short that may lie before us. Grant them holy zeal and godly wisdom. And for any who might be listening to this or maybe sitting even here this morning and just don't know, so confirm within them their need of a Savior and the one who alone is the Lord of life and the King of glory, even Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.